Good morning, everyone. Well, as Harry mentioned, I am going to be doing a little traveling, and it's uh, I've really honestly tried to work it to where I'm gone as little as possible, but you know, stuff just adds up sometimes with COVID. And my business does require me to travel, not only to lead tours to the Bible lands, but also to film, which is what I'll primarily be doing over the next uh, two, three weeks. And then Kathy and I are, uh, and our daughters are going to have a little R&R &R, um, at the Atlantic coast. So anyway, looking forward to that, but uh, I'll miss you, really. <laughs> but you know, it's, I think it's healthy for us to have time apart sometimes, seriously, because it helps me not feel so important. <laughs> and that's, that's really healthy, you know, for me. And it's healthy for you that, uh, that the class is not dependent on, uh, on any one person. It's the Word of God that gives us instruction, not a man. Well, two hunters heard about a bounty that was offered if they could capture wolves alive. Sam and Jed were hunters turned fortune hunters when they realized that if they could capture live wolves, they would get $5,000 per wolf. So they scoured the hills, looking high and low, couldn't find one. Well, in the middle of the night one night while they were camping, Sam woke up to realize they were surrounded by 50 angry wolves <laughs> with fire in their eyes and snarling at them. And he reached over and, and bumped Jed and said, Jed, wake up, we're rich. <laughs> Money does something to our perspective, doesn't it? It can't. For the opportunity to have a lot more money, it can blur our logic. One man wrote to the Christian Science Monitor and said, quote, Dear sirs, when I subscribed a year ago, you stated that if I wasn't satisfied at the end of the year, I could have my money back. Well, I would like it back. On second thought, to save you the trouble, please apply it on my next year's subscription. <laughs> when I need wisdom sometimes with the, the trials of life, I like to read the old theologians, Calvin, and Hobbes. <laughs> and I brought this wonderful little uh, cartoon. The first frame shows Calvin all excited, and he, and he sees on the ground a quarter, and he says, look, a quarter. And the next frame, he says, wow, I'm rich beyond my dreams. I can have anything I want. All my prayers have been answered. And the next frame, he's just kind of standing there thinking. And then the, the final frame, he's on the ground digging, and he says, maybe there's more. <laughs> It's a great window into our hearts, isn't it? When we read our Bibles, we find about 500 verses on prayer, amazingly, less than 500 on faith, and 2,350 verses on money. Jesus taught more on money than any single subject. You know that? Even more than heaven and hell combined. Jesus taught about money. Why is that? Well, because we live and work in a world that often defines our success or failure in, in financial terms. And yet, ironically, on our money, it's printed in God we trust. 
Billy Graham wrote, he said, if a person can get his attitude toward money straight, it will help straighten out almost every other area of life. So how do we do that? Well, let's look together at one of the greatest bits of advice on money and the bigger picture of contentment, and that is in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're continuing our series where we take a single message from each book of the Bible, just not teaching through the whole book, just taking a single look at every single book of the Bible, and we've made it all the way to 1 Timothy. If you read through the book of Acts and Paul's missionary journeys, you remember that on his first missionary journey, he came to a place called Lystra. And at Lystra, Paul was, uh, initially, he and Barnabas were hailed as gods because of the miracle that they did, or he, that Paul did. And then when they found out they, they weren't gods, they stoned Paul and left him for dead. That's, that's, the, that's the crowd for you. You're either a god or we're going to stone you dead. Well, they left him for dead, but miraculously, he got up and uh, left town, of course, he left town. And then on his second missionary journey, to his credit, Paul came back to Lystra. And you would think that Lystra was sort of a lost cause in Paul's mind. I mean, this is, after all, the, the place that, that stoned me last time I was here. But evidently, it wasn't, because at Lystra, Paul also came across a very outstanding young man named Timothy. And Timothy joined Paul and Silas on the second missionary journey, and Timothy never looked back. In fact, Paul became Timothy's mentor uh, for the rest of Paul's life. And when Paul, after Paul was imprisoned, the, um, the apostle wrote to Timothy, wrote a couple of letters, the first of which we're looking at here in 1 Timothy 6. Timothy was the pastor, the young pastor of the uh, amazing church of Ephesus, to which Paul also wrote the book of Ephesians. And so, it's, if you think about it, Ephesus got some incredible teaching. It got the book of Ephesians, it got First and Second Timothy, it got Paul living there for three years, Timothy ministering there as pastor for however many years, the apostle John lived there during his last years, and then John also wrote the, uh, probably wrote the Gospel of John, his three epistles, from Ephesus, and um, wrote in the book of Revelation the final letter there to Ephesus, to the church at Ephesus. So Timothy pastored an, an incredible church. And 1 Timothy is Paul's writing to this young pastor about how to do all things ministry, but also to have to what, what to teach people regarding this huge issue of money and the bigger issue of contentment. 1 Timothy 6, look down at verse 5. It's kind of in the middle of a thought, but it's tough to pick it up unless we start at verse 1. But Paul writes about men, these evil men, verse 5, who are of constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. If you have the New International Version, I think it says a financial gain, which is, which is what Paul's talking about. It's the idea of um, the reason that we're godly is because it pays off. Now, there's a lot of people, godly people, in the scriptures who were rich. Think about Abraham. Think about David. But think about Jesus. I mean, he's got the most godly man in the Bible who was born dirt poor and died dirt poor. So it's not a one-to-one -one connection. We can get upside down, like Calvin digging in the dirt, or like a couple of hunters out trying to look for wolves. 
and get upside down in our priorities regarding money. Greed is like that. It'll do that to you. And if you've ever eaten a bag of potato chips, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You can't have just one. You want to eat half the bag, unless they're low-fat chips, and then just go ahead and eat the whole bag. You can't drink a Coke and be satisfied. After you're done drinking a Coca-Cola, you, you're, you're even more thirsty than when you started. It's designed to give you discontent, and that's really what marketing does. Marketing, we live in a world that makes its money off of making us discontent. The way they sell us stuff is by letting us know, you know, you don't have what you need, but we got what you need. All, all you got to do is buy it. That's marketing. And it began, honestly, I mean, some marketing is obviously good, like the gospel. You know, we got what you need. It's the good news. You need to believe in Jesus Christ to have your sins forgiven. Otherwise, you know, there's eternal punishment. But think about where discontent began. Discontent began back with the lie in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? In a context in which, this is amazing, a context in which God told Adam and Eve you can eat from every tree on planet Earth except one. Now, that's pretty generous. Every tree, every fruit-bearing tree is yours. But this one. What did Satan focus on? That one thing. And he used that to drive a wedge between Adam and Eve and God. God's holding out on you. If God really loved you, if God really had your best in mind, then you could eat from this tree too. Did God really say, you, you know, the reason he did that is because you'll be better off if you do it. See, that's marketing, isn't it? Creating discontent in order to cause us to act. Satan zeroed in on the one thing God prohibited and created discontent in the context of abundance. Now, that is a simple sentence, but that is the sentence of our lives. We have discontent in a context of abundance. Well, in contrast, here we've read verse 5 of those who um, suppose that godliness is a means of gain. In, a, in other words, they're just in it for the money. Look at verse 6. There's a, there's a contrast here. Paul writes, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. See, there's nothing wrong with gain. Just make sure it's the, the gain we're chasing is the right gain. It's the right goal. And if our motivation to obey God is simply because God's going to give us something or reward us financially or materially, then our barometer of God's blessings, simply financial, Paul says, you've been robbed of the truth. And think about that. That's a really a neat picture. That if you're thinking about where the true rich, richness is, if you think it's in money or material things, you have been robbed of the truth. It's a neat picture. We're talking about money, and Paul says you're robbed of the truth. Biblically, the motivation to live a good life isn't greed, but it's gratitude. Max Licato wrote this. He said, Contentment is a state of heart in which you would be at peace if God gave you nothing more than he already has. Test yourself with this question. What if God's only gift to you were his grace to save you? Would you be content? Well, we got a principle already from the text here. This is principle number one that we could take away by means of application, and it's simply this, that our greatest gain 
comes in non-financial goals, godliness and contentment. Godliness and contentment. Our greatest gain comes in non-financial goals. Think about the things that mean the most to you in life. We may get a lot of those things through money, but, you know, money is not the goal. It's a tool. It is a tool that we use or it is something that we worship. Benjamin Franklin once said, Who is rich? He that is content. Who is content? Nobody. Just listen to how Paul said it in the book of Philippians. You don't need to turn there, but just listen to Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. Philippians 4, 11, Paul writes, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the secret. That's the secret. What's the secret of contentment? Knowing that you can do all things through Christ. And he goes on in verse 19, and he says, My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He's saying the same thing. Twice in those verses, Paul says that he learned contentment. He learned it. He didn't, you know, he wasn't born content. He didn't become content as soon as he placed his faith in Christ. He says he learned it, and he learned it against the ropes of struggle. And I love that because even the Apostle Paul had to learn contentment. How much more do we have to learn it? It's not something we're born with. One day I was uh, at home and I was working on my laptop and my wife, ever the wise woman she is, came over and said, would you do me a favor? You know, guys, you know when your wife asks you that, it's sort of a loaded answer. There's no answer but yes, but you, then, then you brace yourself for whatever it is because it could be anything. She said, instead of working on your laptop today, why don't you pick a good book and just sit in the backyard and read it? And I thought, well... I can say yes to that. And so I went and grabbed Anne Voskamp's celebrated book called 1,000 Gifts. I always heard about how great it was. I'd never read it. And we had it on the shelf, so I grabbed it. And honestly, at first, the book was a little hard to read. It's uh, got short sentences, sort of choppy phrases. I mean, the book's got more sentence, more periods than per square inch than most books I've read. It's not a speed read, which bothers me, because when I read books, I, I read them pretty fast. And when you've got periods all, all over the place, it's like, it's like these constant speed bumps that keep stopping you. And about halfway through, I figured out, I bet she did that on purpose. She's slowing me down and forcing me to read slower. And it reminded me, you know, the whole idea of the 1,000 gifts uh, that uh, Anne writes about, she... she um, the book reminds us that gratitude begins and continues by giving thanks for God's blessings that are right in front of you. And she did this by listing 1,000 gifts that, that she sees just in her daily life as a farmer's wife. And so she sort of challenged the reader to do the same thing, not to write 1,000, you know, a list of 1,000 things, but I thought, you know, I could start with 10. So I wrote, I wrote a few down. Let me read them to you. My wife and daughters the love that dogs give us, 
music that, that inspires worship, the changing seasons, silence of early mornings, Israel trips, fingers to type with, meetings that start on time. God gives strength to go on when I can't, receiving clear direction. And there are others. But one of the things I learned is that the challenge, and she goes on to say, basically have this mindset every day, that you want to have a daily mindset of looking for things to be thankful for. And what this does, if you've got the assignment in your heart to look for things to be thankful for, then you are retraining your brain to look for things to be thankful for. We default to looking to things to complain for. Like, uh, I don't know if you've ever had a, a car that was out of alignment. I used to have a pickup truck, and it seemed like every pothole I hit knocked that thing so far out of alignment. I'd be going down the road, and if I didn't keep my hand on the steering wheel and I just let go, all of a sudden I'd be in the ditch. That's our hearts. Our hearts are out of alignment. By default, we'd be in the ditch if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit giving us the wisdom to hang on and to keep steering in the right direction. Having a mindset of thankfulness each day, of saying, look, today I'm going to look for something to be thankful. I'm going to look for something to, to give thanks to God. It, it reshapes your mind. It, um, it causes you, it retrains your brain to look for things to be grateful for. And that's, that's really helpful. I found it very helpful. Paul goes on to nurture this kind of a mindset. He says it begins with perspective. Look at verse 7. He says, for, so in other words, he's explaining, for we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. See the perspective? We brought nothing into the world. We take nothing from the world. When John D. Rockefeller died, his accountant was asked how much Rockefeller had left behind. And the accountant's answer was simple, everything. I like that answer. We've heard it before, but boy, it's a wonderful, wonderful picture. You never see a hearse with a trailer hitch. Brought nothing into the world, you take nothing out with you. You go out alone. And if they, didn't, if they didn't clothe us, we'd go out the same way we came in. Paul says it begins with perspective. Contentment begins with the perspective that we brought nothing into the world and we take nothing out of the world. So if we have food and clothing, food and covering, meaning clothing and shelter, with these basic things, we can find contentment. Listen to what King David prayed when he had collected money to build the temple in Jerusalem for his son Solomon to build the temple. David prayed. Just listen uh, as I read 1 Chronicles 29, verse 16. David prayed, O Lord our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand and all of it belongs to you. That is a great perspective on riches. We brought nothing into the world. That means nothing we have in the world is ours. It all belongs to God. And this is our second principle. God owns it all. 
and we are but stewards of his possessions. God owns it all. We are but stewards of his possessions. It's a pretty subtle temptation to think about all we have as ours. I mean, my car has my name on it. My house has my name on it. Uh, Everything that I own has my name on it. But if you think about it, my house and the dirt that it stands on, or I should say the dirt that I own, has been there for thousands of years before it was my dirt. It was God's dirt. And when I'm gone, should the Lord tarry another thousand years, whoever lives at my house and gets to enjoy all the trees I planted, (laughs) it won't be mine. It's still God's. Everything we enjoy is God's. We are merely stewards of it. Even when it has our name on it, it's God's. I read about a church in Florida, the Bushnell Assembly of God. The American Family Publishers sent a computer-generated entry form addressed to the church, but it was addressed to God of Bushnell. And the letter said, quote, God, we're searching for you. You've been positively identified as our $11 million mystery millionaire. And the church's pastor told the local paper that the church probably wouldn't send the form in because God already has $11 million. (laughs) I told that to my wife, and she said, yeah, and the church is probably looking for a new pastor (laughs) these days. But a biblical biblical perspective on money begins with the perspective that it's all God's. It's all his. And if it's all his, then that makes us stewards. What's a steward? A steward is somebody that has the responsibility for taking care of the possessions of somebody else. And that's really what we're doing. We are stewards of all our stuff because it's really God's. I think this is what Jesus meant when he said, quote, so therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Jesus isn't teaching a vow of poverty. He's teaching a vow of ownership, or maybe a vow of perspective would be better. That we hold everything we have with an open hand. Nothing is clutched. It's all given. It's all an open hand. If God wants to take it, if God wants to give it, as Job said, blessed is the Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed is the Lord. So why should we stay content with these basic things? Well, Paul gives us a couple of really good reasons here in verse 9. Look at verse 9. He says, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. What a picturesque couple of verses. The verse 9 is often misquoted as to say that money is the root of all evil. Have you heard that? Money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Money isn't evil. God owns it all. But the love of money, and the love of money is not an end goal in itself. Paul says the love of money is actually a beginning. It is a root. And from that root, all kinds of fruit, different kinds of fruit, Uh, sprout out. 
Loving money will take you down many different wicked paths. Look at the descriptive way here in verse 9 and 10 that Paul describes the results of loving money. He says it's a temptation. He says it's a trap. That in itself is an amazing picture. The love of money is a trap. It's a snare. It leads you into many foolish, harmful desires. It plunges people into ruin. The, the word there for plunge The only other time that it's used in the New Testament, that original word refers to a ship that is sinking. Destruction, and they pierce themselves with many griefs. Again, look at that picture. A love of money is piercing yourself. It's a self-inflicted wound. Mark Twain was one time challenged by a group of Mormons to prove from the scriptures that polygamy was not God's will. Mark Twain says, oh, that's easy. He says, from the lips of Jesus, no man can serve two masters. (laughs) Well, that's pretty much out of context, isn't it? The true context of that comes from Matthew 6. Listen while I read the, uh, the full context here. It's not talking about marriage. It's talking about money. Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot, Jesus says, serve both God and money. It's one or the other. The Barna Research Group, George Barna's research group, reported that almost 40% of Americans identify money as their primary felt need. We see it, don't we? And we struggle with it ourselves. I remember that line in Forrest Gump where, uh, you know, Apple's uh, stock just went through the roof and Forrest Gump says, well, you know, I don't have to worry about anything else now. You know, the, the, he says, we're ne- never going to have to worry about money again. And he says, well, that's good. That's one less thing. <laughs> and all of us looking at it going, yeah, but that's everything. But boy, his perspective was actually more accurate than ours, wasn't it? It's not everything. God is the one who owns it all. I was standing in a a convenience store one time, I don't know, buying a soft drink or something. I was there in line, and the lady in front of me, when she got up to the counter, began buying all these uh, lottery tickets. And she knew them all by name. You know, she says, I want five quick picks and seven lucky this and whatever the names are. She was rattling them off. Before I know, she had spent like 40, 50 bucks on these tickets. Anyway, while they were tearing them off and and ringing it all up, I just said, excuse me, do you ever break even on that? And she turned around with just this beautiful face, and she said, sometimes. I said, in other words, no. Because sometimes, it isn't a one-for-one thing. Sometimes you break even, most of the time, you don't. Susie Orman has a book called Nine Steps to Financial Freedom, and she shares in it a story that every time I read it is chilling. She says, when I was 13, my dad owned his own business, a tiny shack where he sold chicken, ribs, hamburgers, hot dogs, and french fries. One day, the oil that the chicken was fried in caught fire. In a few minutes, the whole place exploded in flames. My dad bolted from the store before the flames could engulf him. 
Then my mom and I arrived on the scene, and we all stood outside watching the fire burn away my dad's business. All of a sudden, my dad realized he had left his money in the metal cash register inside the building, and I watched in disbelief as he ran back into the inferno before anyone could stop him. He tried to open the metal register, but the intense heat had already sealed the drawer shut. Knowing that every penny he had was locked in front of him and about to go up in flames, he picked up the scalding metal box and carried it outside. When he threw the register on the ground, the skin on his arms and chest came off with it. He had escaped the fire safely once, untouched. Then he voluntarily risked his life and was severely injured. The money was that important. That was when I learned that money is obviously more important than life itself. From that point on, earning money, lots of money, not only became what drove me professionally, but also became my emotional priority. The plain fact is that money, as Jesus said, competes with God as master of our lives more than anything else does. Listen to Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. Solomon wrote, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This, too, is vanity. Let me read it again. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This, too, is vanity. If I could say that another way, You can't get enough of what you worship. You can't get enough of what you worship. If you worship money, more money doesn't satisfy you. In fact, there's a credible sense of discontent. This is what Solomon is saying. But if you take that principle and apply it to the Lord, it's also true, but then it gets turned on its head. When we worship God, we can't get enough of Him either, and yet there's contentment. It's a strange inversion. We worship money, There's no contentment. We can't get enough of it. But when we worship God, we can't get enough of Him either. But there's joy. There's nothing else in life that compares to that. The Christian finds gain in non-financial items, Paul writes. Godliness, contentment. Look here in 1 Timothy again, chapter 6, and let's continue verse 11. Paul has just described the foolishness of those who love money And he says in verse 11, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Paul begins by saying, but you. And it's it's very emphatic in the original language. The world is like this. They love money. They suffer for it. But you be different. You pursue different things. You pursue eternal things. You pursue the things of God. Let's skip a few verses, but look down at verse 17. Paul continues this theme. He says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. 
There's negative commands here and there's positive commands. First, the negative. If you're rich, and by the way, we all are, if the, the, if the baseline is, if we have food and covering, we should be content. Anything above it, and that includes all of us, are rich. Paul says, for those of you who are rich, first of all, don't be conceited. To be conceited with money is to place your hope in it. In fact, he goes on to say that. Don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. If you have ever placed your hope on uncertain riches, and then all of a sudden the riches were gone, you know exactly the, the futility of that kind of a passion. Um, I grew up with a father who pursued money. In fact, I can remember him at, at one point actually telling me uh, the reason that he was doing this particular work. He said, eventually, he said, eventually there's going to be plenty of money for everybody. That never panned out. And I remember the, just the futility and frustration of him working so hard. And uh, it, he just seemed to go backwards with it all. Don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Well, here's the positive command. If that's what we don't do, what do we do? He says, fix your hope on God, who richly supplies. What a beautiful picture. God richly supplies. It's all his, remember, by the way. He says, if you want to be rich, be rich in something else. Be rich in good works. That's true wealth, to be rich in, in good works. Be, be generous, he says. Be ready to share. Store up true riches. Well, here's the final principle we get from 1 Timothy 6. When our hope is in God, we are free to be rich in good works. If your hope is in God... You're free to be rich in good works because, you see, we're trusting him to take care of all that money stuff. That doesn't mean that we don't work. Paul would say, he would write in the epistles to the Thessalonians, if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. There is this sense of responsibility. In fact, Paul would never presume upon any of the churches that he visited. He always would work hard and not expect you know, to be given anything to where if he was given anything, it was just extra or he often passed it along to others. But when our hope is in God, we are free to be rich in good works. Jesus taught a very similar truth, didn't he? I wonder if these verses sound familiar to you. Turn to, if you would, to Matthew. You can leave First Timothy and turn to Matthew 6, and let's read a couple of words that Jesus wrote right along the same line. Matthew 6, this is his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And he said some very similar principles that Paul said. And it's nice to sort of hear it reiterated in a different way. Matthew 6, let's start in verse 19. Paul writes, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Look down at verse 31. Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom, 
and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's almost like the Apostle Paul, in writing to Timothy, was reading Matthew's gospel, because the principles are exactly the same, where he tells the rich, don't store up, don't store up stuff here on earth. You want to be rich, be rich in good deeds. That's where true wealth comes from. I will never forget when I was very early uh, in the ministry, I'd say good grief, probably 30 years ago. Um, I started the ministry when I was six, by the way. (laughs) Anyway, I got this phone call from this friend of a friend, I don't remember who it was, about a man who uh, was in a desperate way and was, uh, uh, they asked if I'd go over and talk with him. And, you know, sure. I'll go talk with him. So I went over there, and the address, this is back before the, the time of GPS, and so you're wondering if you're at the right place. you got the address, you got a map. And I pull into this, like, palatial place. I was like, I checked the address three or four times. Yep, yep, that, that, this is the place. I walk down to these fine trim lawns, and I go up to this big oak door, and you hit, you know, you hit it, and it sounds like you're, you're knocking on a cave. Boom, boom. And the lady that opened the door just cracked the door and looked out. I thought, well, this is not a good start. And I said, uh, you know, kind of awkward, I said, well, um, you know, I got this phone call. He's around back, she said, slam. So I thought, well, all right, how do you get to the back of this thing? So I walk, find my way around back of the garage, and this guy's sitting on on this uh, bucket, on this upside-down bucket in the corner of the garage, you know, holding a... uh, a bag, you know, obviously got something he's drinking in it. And I, I pulled up a bucket and sat down there beside him, and we began to talk. And he just unloaded on me about how bad his life was. And he said, uh, I single-handedly built Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. And he's just telling me how, how he did it. And then he also said this. I'll never forget this sentence. He said, I missed nine Christmases with my family. And I thought, well, that's probably why I just got the door slammed in my face. He said that his family was, wanted nothing to do with him, and his, his, his life, in a sense, was reduced to this paper bag. And I remember after I, I shared the gospel with him, I shared, tried to give him some encouragement, and it was like I was speaking Chinese. Uh, just this blank look on his face. We were not connecting. I remember driving away and crying because it was so, so tragic. It was so tragic that money was, I mean, and he had it. I just drove away from this castle, and it was a castle of despair. Now, we probably don't live in castles, but we can have that same despair. If money is the thing that we're chasing, as opposed to, as, as Jesus says, uh, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things that the Gentiles chase, they will be added to you. Or as Paul says, you don't, you don't chase those things, man of God, woman of God. You chase the things of righteousness, and you trust the Lord who owns it all. So our three principles, once again, just to summarize, our greatest gain comes in non-financial goals, godliness and contentment. 
Second, God owns it all, and we are simply stewards of his possessions. And finally, when our hope is in God, we are free to be rich in good works. Well, it's tough. We, can, we close our Bibles, and we say amen, and we walk right back out into the Garden of Eden with the lies of Satan pointing to the one tree we can't have. Remember, look for those blessings. God has blessed us in abundance if we'll just look for it and if we'll give him thanks for what he has given. That's a healthy perspective. Let's pray. Our Father, we read in the Proverbs this wonderful prayer from the author. Two things I ask of you, O Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Father, as we look at these wonderful words written from Paul to his young friend and disciple, Timothy, we see these words written to us. Certainly, Timothy could apply them and Timothy could teach them in his church. But we read these words as if they were written to us because we live in a culture that money is God. Money is the thing that is chased and what defines success. And in those quiet moments of honesty, Lord, and even right now, in the quietness of our hearts, we confess to you, we have all chased it. We have all felt the futility of trying to have two gods and the, the discontent that takes over our hearts when we look to anyone but you as the one who provides. Thank you for the words of Christ in Matthew 6. Thank you for the words of Paul in 1 Timothy 6. These words that remind us that we need to pursue godliness and trust you, Lord, you who own it all, who know our needs and promise to meet them, that we can trust you, that you will take care of us. So strengthen us today and give us a, a renewed perspective to begin to recognize and to give thanks for the abundance of blessings that you've showered upon us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.